And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm delighted to welcome Andy Davidson back to the program today. Andy is a novelist who has published three books, his first being In the Valley of the Sun, his second, The Boatman's Daughter, and today we'll be talking about the third, The Hollow Kind, which follows four generations of a Georgia family as the pine forest they own exerts its supernatural will on the family and demands tribute. Andy, The Hollow Kind starts off with an old man being overtaken by a strange power in September of 1988. As much as you want to tell us what's come for him. Well, there's a presence that's lingering on August Redfern's property at Redfern Hill. It's an entity. It's a creature that's been there a very long time. Certainly before August himself was there in the early days of his enterprise, which was a turpentine farm. I think that enterprise got started in the early 1900s. And whatever is there under the house has been there a long time prior to that. And so essentially the creature that is dwelling in the land, which is later referred to by August's wife as the dweller, is essentially just an old little god in, in a lot of ways, you know, that demands tribute. Similar to um, the boatman's daughter, nature is such an mm -hmm. integral role in this. And, and also nature does not necessarily have the best intentions toward mankind. What about that concept of a humanity and nature and its conflict interests you so much? Well, to me, it's the reverse of that. It's the idea that mankind does not have very good intentions toward nature generally. And so I suppose from nature's point of view, why should nature have any good intentions toward man? But yeah, I think like there's a conflict between capitalism, the impulses of industry, taming the land, that sort of thing, with nature, which just wants to be because nature is nature. And if you add sentience to the mix, well, why would nature want to be tamed by man? And so that's a really potent concept for me. I grew up in South Arkansas in pulpwood country, paper mills in every small town. When I was a kid, I would see these pine forests that were just planted to grow and be cut down. Whole swaths of them would be eliminated. And so for me, there was this constant cycle of life and, and death and rebirth because the fields were always replanted and resown. And you see that a lot here in Georgia, where I am now too, in this area, which is very similar to where I grew up in many ways in terms of the land. And that's just always been something in the back of my mind that I thought there's something there. There's something about that relationship that's fertile ground for for conflict, for for horror as well. Now, The Boatman's Daughter was set in southern Arkansas, where you grew up. And now The Hollow Kind is set in Georgia, where you live now. Did you have to get Arkansas out of your system before you went on to Georgia? Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Um <laughs> I knew when I wrote The Boatman's Daughter, I just knew that I wanted to set something in my home state. This was my second book. For my third novel, I wanted to write about something that felt a little closer to where I am now in the world, which is, again, here in middle Georgia, which is remarkably like Arkansas in terms of the topography, in terms of the soil, in terms of the, the industries that have cropped up here. But there's a few things about Georgia that are also unique, one of which is in the wiregrass region and coastal regions of Georgia, which is about, I would say, maybe an hour from where I live, there was this industry of turpentining, which uses pine trees for a very different purpose. And this extends down into North Florida, too, I think, to basically tap the pine trees and harvest the sap and distill it 
in a turpentine mill and out of that comes turpentine which of course in uh, the early part of the 1900s and the latter part of the 1800s was a big industry here in the south the naval stores industry that is unique to this region compared to my home state where most of the pine trees were simply again cut down to be paper and and lumber and what have you but a piney wood forest has a very different feeling than like a deciduous forest with a lot of mm-hmm. trees like oaks and maples and such Yes, absolutely. In Georgia, most of the pine forests now are very similar to the ones in Arkansas. But I I think the older pine forests, and you see these are coming back, I think whether they're being replanted, are these older long leaf pine forests, which I I think are very stately, very cathedral-like. They're very beautiful. They are wide open. There's not a lot of undergrowth. The wire grass that grows as a kind of floor to the forest flourishes in fire. And so a lot of these forests are managed through controlled burns. When the undergrowth burns off, you know, the wire grass will rebloom very quickly. The trees themselves are these massive thick pines that are actually resistant to fire, but also seem to be strengthened by fire. And so that's one of the differences that I see here is that just the way the forests are laid out in in terms of the forest floor they're much more accessible and they're less mixed at times too i mean we have plenty of bottomlands we have plenty of hardwood forests but in terms of the managed forests that are trying to be reseeded and regrown here yeah there's almost a kind of religious quality to how beautiful they can be with something like a loblolly pine that are just so incredibly tall before their branches start it's just mm-hmm. it's an amazing that you can be in a forest that feels so open yeah absolutely and that's something that i think when you look at like the forests of north florida and then the turpentining forests that that's a very common trait to all of those these very tall beautiful pines and the sense of open cathedral-like space beneath them for the workers and, and industry to move around in kind of feels like a e fay jones thorn crown chapel in northern arkansas oh yeah 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 that's a beautiful place In the course of the book, you have two major timelines. One is set in 1989, and it's fairly compressed. And the other starts in 1917, when August Redfern gets married. And it plays out over the course of more than a decade. Why did you decide that structure was something you wanted to choose? Well, I knew that part of the impetus behind this book was trying to bring the past and the present together in in telling this sort of generational story of a family. And so... I chose 1989 because I knew I was going to be writing about a young mother and her son who I wanted to be about 11 years old, because I think at the age of 11, there's something really kind of potent and critical that happens in a child's life, boy, girl, what have you. And was that about the age you were at that time too? Yeah, and it was. And that that's that's why I chose 89, was that I was about 11 and that, at that time period. So it felt like the most accessible way to get there for me, to get back into that headspace of having a, a sort of child hero and, and all of that in the book. But also, you know, there's an impulse I have in my writing to set everything before smartphones existed. <laughs> and so I just feel like smartphones are something I, I don't know, maybe eventually I'll write something But right now, the thing that I'm looking forward to working on next is kind of post-apocalyptic. And so there's no more phones then either. So (laughs) 
Yeah, the 89 timeline was essentially for Nellie Gardner, August Redfern's granddaughter, and her son, Max. And then prior to that, we have the timeline of the house and the history of Redfern Hill, the thing that haunts it, essentially, to sort of play out in this alternating chapter structure with the present, which is 89. Nellie is August's granddaughter, and she's very much in need of a lifeline thrown to her at the beginning of the book. And it comes to her when her grandfather dies. Yes. The lifeline, that's a good way to put it, is essentially that she inherits Redfern Hill, which is about a thousand acres of of estate that's left over from August Redfern's property. So it's a farmhouse and it's the old turpentine camp and a lot of the forest that surrounds it along the banks of the river. Nellie at the time is in South Carolina when she learns of her grandfather's death. She's left Georgia many years ago and has since gotten married to a fellow by the name of Wade Gardner, who's an English professor. And Wade's a pretty nasty character. And so she's in a very bad marriage, she's in a bad place when the narrative kicks off. Redfern Hill is essentially that lifeline to get out of that marriage and and find a place that uh, she can retreat to, a place that's a refuge, a place to hide away, as the old Carpenter song says. Now, Gardner, of course, is a great name for a uh, story set in the land, so intrinsically. (laughs) But Wade is named appropriately enough because he is up to his knees in the muck of bitterness and resentment. Nice. Yeah. I did not get that deep with Wade, (laughs) um, but that's good. I, uh, I knew a guy in high school named Wade, and he was a bully. There's a few names in the course of my career as a writer that I will probably trot out who are not nice guys, and and Wade is one of them, yeah. With this getting grandfather's property just when she needed it, it seems that the concept of profiting from someone else's death is a theme that comes and just repeats again and again throughout the course of the book. Yeah, the idea that in this world, I guess, death can be an opportunity as well. Or in, especially if you're beholden to a creature in the woods that demands tribute, death is a, is a necessity, um, sacrifice, the idea of things must be done. Uh, and in this particular case, it's as simple as creatures in the woods need to eat and they need to be fed. And that act of subservience results in, um, if not long-term, then definitely short-term profits, short-term fortune. So there's a kind of mystic thing happening there as well with this creature. But yeah, absolutely. And we'll go to the Bible for the old saw. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the world and lose his own soul? That's an interesting thing with this book is I wanted to tell the story of an outsider to the South who comes into a land that's that's really steeped in ways that are not his. And he essentially just is a journeyman. He was a sailor in the Atlantic off the coast of New England before he came here. And he wants to establish something where he can put down roots. He wants to build an empire in appropriately. This is a name I did think about, Empire Georgia. So, <laughs> As you said, he comes from up north and he tells a group of men he, he's trying to recruit to work the land uh, in order to do a turpentine business there that he doesn't hold any truck with racial segregation. And we see them, he has these lofty ideas in treating workers well, or at least giving them the the fruit of their labors, uh, not going along with segregation. But we see that, you know, his morality does become compromised over the years because of this dweller. 
Right. And and that's an interesting idea to me, the idea that you can be a person of ideals, that you can be a person who believes very staunchly in ideas that are good ideas. But when personal greed or personal profit or even the protection of one's own family and one's own blood enters into the picture, those ideals can be set aside in favor of much more practical notions. And much as is in our, our world, people not being able to grasp the difference between desire and necessity in their motivations. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's something that Redfern struggles with throughout the book. And I think in many ways he's ill-equipped to distinguish between those two things in a way that maybe perhaps his wife Euphemia is is not so ill-equipped to distinguish between. I think she does understand the difference between desire and necessity. And for her, necessity kind of takes precedent in terms of keeping the industry running, keeping the family fed, keeping food on the table. Now, you mentioned his wife, Euphemia. That's how he comes into all of this land from her father, Mr. Baxter. And, you know, a woman wants a man with some ambition, but she discovered that August had too much ambition for her needs. Yeah, yeah. She blames the trees. Uh, there was something about the trees that he fell in love with. And at some point, his eye wandered away from her into the woods. And she's very young, Euphemia, at the beginning of the novel. I think she's 18 when they're married. And so I think for her, as a character in the book, it's a process of learning who she is and figuring out what it is she wants out of life. And being confronted with the fact that marriage is not going to give her those things necessarily, that if she wants to have status, if she wants to have place, if she wants to have a sense of home that is hers and not someone else's, that those are things that she has to essentially take rather than wait on a man to provide. I looked up euphemia and its meaning, and it means good to speak or fair speech but it ends up she's the one that's being spoken to. I was really delighted by the idea that, and this was sort of a surprise that emerged in the writing of the book. I'm a very meticulous outliner, plotter. But in, when in my original conception of the novel, I thought that the heavy in the book was the dweller. The heavy was this creature in the woods, this little god. And it sort of turns out the book has three heavies. There's not just the dweller. There's not just Wade Gardner. But there's also Euphemia Redfern who, to my great pleasure, turned out to be quite a formidable character in later drafts of the book, especially when I was doing some revising. I really fleshed out her arc and her story. And so, yeah, like I, I like the idea that this creature in the woods, it, it speaks to you, uh, but it speaks to the people that it thinks are going to do its bidding or at the very least help it along and, and get it fed. Uh, and so I think much like Euphemia loses faith in August Redfern's ability to be a decisive person who's willing to make sacrifices for the family, I think the dweller sees that in him too. And so the dweller naturally turns its whispering to Euphemia. You know, there's the old crime novels, you, know, you can't cheat an honest man. You can't, you know, con him. Right. But then there is a, a song lyric I always enjoyed, is that any man with dignity makes an easy mark. <laughs> yeah. And see, see that difference between dignity and honesty and, and how that can prey on your soul. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think with August, I think much of his life is lived questioning the decisions he's made 
because as the, I think it's the first line in the book is somehow he lives. And so there's this idea when he's an old man still alive in 1987, 88, in his mind, it's like, how did I get here? How did I even survive this long? Why am I here when all of the others around me have died? My children, my, they've either died or left him, his children, his wife, all of these horrible things have happened. And they all happened a long time ago, and somehow he continues existing. And so there's a lot of questions in his mind, I think, in that opening chapter when he takes his axe and sets up the hill toward the house. Well, sometimes survival is punishment itself. Yeah, yeah. For people that are very indignant, it's the Hawley family in the 1917 timeline. They are really upset with the Red Ferns and the Baxters. There's essentially this idea that springs out of the history of this region, which is that a great portion of the land that Redfern owns, he receives it through the dowry of his wife. But George Baxter, her father, took it for pennies on the dollar is what the book says. In reality, in history, there were these northern lumber barons like George Baxter who came down in the wake of the Civil War to um, this particular area in Georgia where I live and seized land through dubious claims at best dubious claims from uh, a land and lumber company that they had bought up that existed prior to the civil war and there's a lot of like untangling you have to do to sort of figure out the threads of how they thought they had legal right to this land and then there's still the question of did they really think they had legal right or did they know they didn't and they just lied and took it but there's a lot of longleaf forests in this region that were seized or bought up for very little money from local farmers and local farmers and white settlers sort of took to task the idea that these lumber barons own the property first they took them to court and when the courts couldn't settle things because the courts at least in their favor because courts were favorable to these northern men of wealth they took up arms and decided to settle it that way and so you have this about 50 year history of a land war here in georgia in dodge county and surrounding counties where people were being shotgunned to death in their living room and so i wanted to kind of pull that thread of history in and tie it into the redfern family and the hollies are sort of the representative family in that that they're this this sort of confederate family that remembers the days when this land belonged to them and was not some Yankees, some carpetbaggers. Now, of course, if you trace all of that back further, what you find is this land was originally tribal hunting grounds for Creek Indians. This land was originally owned by no one. Then we get back to your first question of the conflict between people and the land and this idea of ownership and can land really be owned? Should land really be owned and all of that? And so I mean, these trees had been here for, I don't know, I want to say since like the Pleistocene era, these trees have been here and, and nobody's really certain entirely how these longleaf pines got here to this region, the sandy soil. There's a lot of, you know, scientific speculation and, and theories about it, but nobody's really certain. But anyway, but yeah, um, the Hollies are kind of the representatives of that thread. And for the family that's representatives of Augusta's openness to people of all races is Ishmael Green and his sons, Eli and James. They don't have many good memories about Arkansas. They don't. The Greens are itinerant workers who have come out of Arkansas to Georgia 
And there's this idea that the two sons are kicking around that they could do better in Florida throughout the whole book. But Ishmael, their father, essentially wants to settle. He wants to be in one place. He's tired. He's old. And so you have this idea of the workers that worked in these turpentine farms, uh, by and large, were itinerant people. They came for a season and they left. And August Redfern's idea is that he wants to cultivate people, families who would stay here and be his workers. Loyalty. Of course, it works for a while until it doesn't. <laughs> Your previous novel, The Boatman's Daughter, used Shakespeare's The Tempest as a touchstone. Is there a similar inspiration for The Hollow Kind? I don't know. I mean, I I set out with The Hollow Kind. I didn't have any kind of literary antecedents necessarily, other than a little bit of cosmic horror and weird fiction from, you know, the era of early 1900s, people like H.P. Lovecraft. But Lovecraft is, you know, such a problematic author. I didn't want to put too much of the book on the shoulders of, of that legacy. And so I think a lot of the, the book came out of much just my desire to write a haunted house novel, but do it in a way that was interesting and, and unusual, at least to the genre. So not necessarily that the house is haunted by ghosts, but that the house itself is somehow physically bound up with a monster that has the ability to manipulate matter, manipulate the dead, manipulate almost the, the wood and, and the, the structure of the house itself in a way or is at least bonded with it. So I was trying to write a haunted house. It it was born really more out of my experiences just here, my wife and I looking at houses that you know we were interested in maybe purchasing and ultimately we didn't buy a house, but a couple of those houses had some fascinating aspects to them, one of which was an old Civil War farmhouse that had been cut in half and moved to another location. And when it was rejoined, there was a seam, a copper seam that ran down the middle of the house. And so the house literally had a scar from its separation. And I thought that idea of a house having the physical evidence of, of violence done to it was a fascinating idea. And so in this book, you have the dweller, which lives in the woods when the woods are rich, but when the woods aren't rich, it it migrates south a bit to the cellar of the house where the locus of the family is, where Euphemia's strength really is at a certain point in the book. No great lofty literary antecedents to this one, maybe. Will you write a book soon about uh, food poisoning? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I think there's probably a lot of other writers who would be braver than I am to tackle uh, what goes on in the human stomach when when food is is not properly prepared. So I'll leave that to someone else. The word hollow can have several different meanings. One meaning a low spot in some woods, as well as just an area of like negative space. But it also means mm -hmm. lacking in real value or sincerity. I think that that's partly there for sure. Certainly with what's behind motivations of some characters in the book but for me there's a passage in the book that kind of points directly to i think what i was thinking of with the title the hollow kind it's a passage and a flashback between nelly as a young girl and her grandfather and she has this epiphany this revelation that the two of them are somehow the same that nelly has recently lost her mother to cancer and she's been her caretaker all this time 
She knows that there's a history with the house of, of Redfern having lost his family, although she doesn't know the particulars of how. And so she has this sort of revelatory moment where she realizes that she and her grandfather are both hollowed out by grief. And so that's essentially the idea of kind and kindred. We are made kin through our grief hence the hollow kind. And of course, there's a connection later with the woods that I don't want to give away too much in the book, but essentially when a pine tree is tapped long enough for its sap, it loses its regenerative properties and its ability to heal itself. And you end up with these trees that are sort of horribly disfigured and basically hollowed out as the, the sap has tried to kind of heal over the scars they're being tapped and so there's a lot there's a lot definitely in the title that's loaded uh, <laughs> in that respect yeah well it's just such an interesting concept that hollow itself is not a thing but it's something that's defined by its boundaries yes yeah absolutely also in the south you can hear the word hollow pronounced as holler and mm -hmm. the real terror in this book doesn't come from hollering it comes from whispers yeah and that's, that's a kind of idea that I had. There's a bit of a vampiric thread there, right? With the idea of being enthralled to a thing, a thing that comes and, and sort of waves its hand in your face or whispers in your ear or mesmerizes you. Everybody hears this voice who ends up serving the dweller as it attempts to lure them. But everyone hears something different. And I, I really liked the idea that you might hear your mother's voice is if this thing has the psychic capability to to zero in, to dial in on the thing that would most manipulate you. So you might hear your mother's voice, you might hear your child's voice, or in August's case, you might hear the wind in the trees. This idea that that was the thing that really spoke to him the strongest was nature and spoke to the the greed in his heart of what he wanted. So yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot going on with the idea of being spoken to and being called to, but not not in a loud way, but in a very subtle, very quiet way, because I think when you become enthralled to something, I don't think it hits you over the head. I think it, it, greed works slowly over time. It needles its way in, you know. In the hollow kind, there are folks who need killing and folks who are killed for need. Yeah, I mean, the, the people who need killing, I mean, that's sort of a euphemia point of view, isn't it? That there are things that need to be done, and here's the gun, go do them. I think those two things are maybe both sides of the same coin. I mean, there's the need to eliminate people, and there is the need for people to be eliminated in order to serve the dweller. And I think that's a, an interesting kind of aspect of when we're when we are in service to a thing and you can you can look at this in a big broad way too like I'm, i don't get into this in the book but i often think about this in terms of religion and faith and the things that we espouse or people espouse in their faith uh, particularly in the south people do horrible things in the name of religious belief and religious faith and people treat people terribly in the name of goodness and so i think any time that we are espousing like a deeply held belief that we have, this is this is my conviction, we should question that because at the heart of it could be a desire to use that conviction to our own ends. And there's certainly a lot of that in the book as well. 
that's what I was kind of getting to that there are some people who the society, the community would be better off without because of the, the violence and the agitation that they bring in. And then there are those who are killed for personal benefit and not a, a greater societal benefit. Sometimes those things line up and are mutual, and then sometimes they don't. One of the most chilling ideas that I had when I was working on the book came, again, it was with Euphemia's character, and it came kind of late in the revision process of a second or third draft, when I realized that her youngest daughter, Eleanor, might have been bred for the express purpose of one day being killed, a sort of sacrificial lamb, as it were, in Euphemia's mind. And that was kind of horrible to me to think about, but also it just seemed like it made sense to me that this would be a way that she would think ahead to the future. But to think of her family in those terms, her own child was was really kind of awful and horrible. But so I guess that would be an example of the latter where the death of a young child is serving no one essentially in society, but the person who decides that that death is necessary. Well, and it may well be in her blood because a descendant from her family, Baxter is much like the Hollies. He is indignant about the Red Ferns owning that property. Yeah. Poor Lonnie, Lonnie Baxter. Lonnie is a character that it's difficult for me to, to fully hate, but he's definitely a bad guy in the book. But I have a lot of pity for Lonnie, a lot of empathy for him, weirdly maybe, because he's a horrible person. And he's the epitome of the kind of person that I I really despise in small town America. Let's just say that my, my parents were educators and growing up with a father who was a school superintendent, high school principal, and a mom who taught second, third grade, you see a lot of parental behavior from just teachers meetings all the way up to like school board meetings. And then you see people who get on school boards. They're always like the worst in my mind. Some of the, the people with, again, those best intentions of, well, we're just doing this for the good of our child or the good of the community. They, they tend to come across as some of the worst people. And so I think in Lonnie's case, there's a little bit of that in there. Like this, this small town mentality of I'm a good man. I ran for mayors. I ran for the, the mayor, mayor's office. I own this lumber mill. I come from a family who's been here forever that the county is named after. But Lonnie's also an ass, and he's also a selfish person who wants what he wants. So yeah, I, I try to make Lonnie as human as possible so that the reader would feel for him and also despise him. I'm fond of him for that reason, I think. <laughs> He's a buffoon. He's such a buffoon. Uh, but one that has a little too much power in that town. Yes, yes. But the limitations of his power are very clear to him at a certain point in the book. And I think that's one of the things that I really like in the way that uh, a character describes him as small town mean. And I think that's true. But, but there's always a bigger fish. There's always someone that doesn't want what you want. And when you run up against that person you may have met your match. And I think that's definitely the case with Lonnie. And that seems a big problem in our country today is people who think they are righteous because of who they are and not because of what they do. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, did you pick 1917 in particular because the Spanish influenza was starting to grip the world at that point to kind of give a nod to the pandemic in our current day? 
Well, it's a funny thing. I initially chose 1917 because it lined up with the 1989 timeline in terms of how old characters would be when they passed away, how old characters would be when they got married, when they had kids. And so it was very much just a family timeline of a family tree that the dates worked. Again, in the second draft, as with Euphemia, I realized that those events couldn't be ignored because they were happening. And it sort of just became a kind of weird and fortunate confluence of of history that at the time that I was discovering that we were also in the midst of our 2020 summer portion of the pandemic uh, with COVID. And there was a kind of strange sense of comfort that I got looking into the the research of the 1918-17 the Spanish flu in that essentially like people were the same, you know, we, all the stupid like behavior that we saw in the media, uh, people not wearing masks, people refusing to take responsibility for their actions, people coming up with crazy half-baked theories about what caused the pandemic. All of that existed in the early 1900s as well with the Spanish flu, you know, people wouldn't wear masks and there were these weird ideas about German aspirin from, you know, World War One. So, I mean, there were a lot of, there's a lot of comfort to be taken in the fact that, you know, we were idiots, we're idiots now, we were idiots then, we survived it then, maybe, maybe we'll survive this now. So in your new book, you said it's post-apocalyptic. Don't tell us <laughs> the reason for the apocalypse, but can you tell us what year it happens? At the moment, I think the, the action proper takes place around 2099, so maybe just 70, 80 years into the future, yeah. So how guilty should we feel about this? Mm, actually, not not too guilty. One of the things that I, I sort of don't want to do is write a pandemic novel. Like, I, I don't want to write a book that deals with airborne diseases <laughs> humanity being eliminated by our own foolishness. And I'm sure that's the way we're going to go. But I think that, you know, I think there's a lot of other people who are doing that. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of go in a different direction with this one. Maybe the metaphor is always there. I mean, whatever it is, whether it's a giant lizard that comes out of the sea or whether it's, you know, a meteorite or whatever. I mean, you can read all of those things as a metaphor for, for simply we brought ourselves to this point. <laughs> Now, toward the book, there is a reference to the boatman's daughter. Or is there going to be a, a reference to uh, the hollow kind in the new book? Not in the, not necessarily in the in the next one, but I do have a, another idea for a book that I've outlined that deals with uh, a little bit with the Green family. So one of the setups in the hollow kind that deals with the Green family is when they finally find their way. I think there's a line that says something to the effect of they left this story and basically went into their own. It doesn't say it that terribly, but it, yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to do something with maybe James and Eli Green's descendants. And so I'm working on that one as well. Now, in both of your recent novels, you've had women characters being central to the story, if not the, the protagonists. How do you approach that? And how do you feel like you're not you know, taking advantage of your position as a man, blah, 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 mm. you know, all, all the, mm -hmm. the gender difficulties that we might have in that. How do you approach that and how do you keep yourself honest? Well, first, I, I write the book I want to read and I don't want to read books about white men. I think white men have 
you know, I mean, we've had our time, we've had our say, it's time to shut up and listen. And, and a lot of people would say, well, how is writing a book about a woman as a white man <laughs> shutting up and listening? And that, that would say fair point. But at the same time, I think like, you know, as writers, we aren't meant to be limited in the way we approach humanity simply by virtue of what we are. I think being able to imagine another point of view and another character's pain and suffering or another character's hope and dreams, those those are things that every writer has to kind of engage with. And so I don't want to shy away from that. But, you know, I also want to be sensitive and careful with that. And, and I know that a lot of the readers, a lot of the beta readers that I have that look at my books, they're, they're women. I mean, they're all women. I, I don't really, I even don't even think of men when I'm writing I I have an ideal reader who is my wife you know I put my faith in her to tell me if I'm being an idiot or whatnot and she usually does and is absolutely right when she's right and so I think there's a a feeling that I have that characters I like to start with characters who are on a back foot and the women that I've written from Annabelle and in the Valley of the Sun to Miranda and the Boatman's Daughter and and now Nellie Gardner, I mean, they've all been on the back foot, you know, and if I write a white male point of view, they're either the villain or they're a child. And, and I think that that's, I don't know, it's just a natural sort of instinct with me. I, I'm not sure I can really analyze it beyond that. Can you share one of the dumbest approaches you had that your wife had to disabuse you of? Well, you know, the stuff she usually catches me on is just boneheaded mistakes about makeup, about the difference between mascara and eyeshadow or what kind of dress a woman might wear, you know, what kind of shoes a woman might wear with an outfit. I mean, I try to be very careful. And so I think usually I I'm, I'm okay in the character territory. I mess up on the details sometimes and she's very good to catch me. So what was the most interesting fact about forestry or turpentine making that did not make it into the book? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I will say that there's a museum. We have a school about an hour from here in Tifton, Georgia, called Abraham Baldwin Agricultural. And it's traditionally been part of the university system of Georgia, but they also run a museum that is uh, specific to turn of the century Georgia. So there are things like grist, there's a working grist mill, there's a working steam train, there's a, a replica of a house that's built with actual heart pine wood and they have a turpentine mill as well that functions and so we went to this place and sort of looked through uh, the museum and we went through the exhibits that they have and the most interesting thing i think that got cut from the book was there's a scene in the book when hank redfern as a young man is about to flee home he's leaving home he's leaving redfern hill and he's trying to start his father's, one of his father's trucks. I saw a truck in the museum and I had already written the scene in the book and I saw the truck and I saw the controls that were in the truck. And I thought, wow, this looks complicated. This isn't just like, here's a, here's a key, stick it in, turn it and start. So I went online and I looked up the process for how to start this truck. And it was an incredibly complicated <laughs> process and i sat down and i wrote it i wrote 
every step, I tried to recreate the tension of not being able to start a truck when you're 14 years old and you don't know how. And ultimately it got cut from the book because I just thought this doesn't need to be there. This is not that <laughs> compelling. This is showing off research for research's sake. So I would say that's the, the closest thing. Most of the stuff about turpentining that I learned did end up in the book. Although there was an epigraph from Zora Neale Hurston who wrote an essay on turpentine farming in Florida that I was going to use and ultimately did not use. So I read a lot of interesting material and gleaned a lot of interesting facts about turpentining, but most of the essential stuff I really had to work to, to figure out. And all of that stuff's pretty much in the book. The hardest thing to write was figuring out the process for how you might deliberately blow up a turpentine mill through the process of turpentining. <laughs> and I'm still not sure if I got that right. So I'm sure somewhere someone will tell me if I didn't. <laughs> we didn't even talk about Hank and his siblings. Um, yes. Ken, let's pick up something real quick on, along that line. Now, we have August and Euphemia, and it's their three children and the loss of one of them that really starts to focus this desire as opposed to necessity. Little Charlie, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that was a thing that... Um, I will say that the death of Charlie Redfern came out of the idea for how that would happen, came out of the act of going to that museum and seeing the process of turpentining and how it works. And there is a point in the process where a sluice is opened and there is a, a gush of molten rosin that pours out through a sieve and uh, filters out all the leaves and gunk and you're left with this hard rosin-like material once it cools. And I did remember thinking, like, what a truly horrific thing that would be to be caught up in that. And, um, yeah, so Charlie Redfern, his tragic death, that's very much a catalyst for August taking action and sort of trying to figure out what's going on on his property. But for Euphemia, it turns almost in a bit into like an ordinary people situation in which the surviving child, Hank, can never live up to her grief over yes. losing Charlie. Yes, right. Hank and Charlie are twins. And I think from the very beginning, she views Hank with suspicion because it's not until she actually has the children on Christmas Eve when she gives birth that she knew she was carrying twins. And so she almost looks at Hank as this kind of surprise that August Redfern snuck past her essentially, that he was one more form of a man's trickery. She was going to have one child, not two. And initially, I think there's a sense, too, that both of the children are, I think the phrase in the book is little white slugs at her breasts when she's feeding them when they're infants. But Charlie emerges as the stronger of the two. He's the brighter. He's the shinier. Um, Hank is the shy one. Hank is the... Uh, the thumb sucker, for lack of a better word, you know, late, late into his childhood. Yeah. And if we want to go biblical again, kind of a, a Jacob and Esau situation. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Although it's interesting, like the Bible doesn't really form a lot of the backbone of the book in terms of the family itself. I mean, there's a passage, I think, where Euphemia talks about sort of rejecting all of the ideas that her mother and father espoused about the Bible. So their religion is very much a, a different sort. I mean, just because you're in the South and you don't say 
you don't care about the Bible doesn't mean the Bible didn't shape your life. Right. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Well, Andy, it's been a pleasure to speak with you again. Thank you so much for uh, being patient with us and uh, coming back around and talking about the hollow kind. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me, Stephen. It's always fun. The Hollow Kind, a novel, is by Andy Davidson and is published by MCD FSG. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 license for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.